Well, good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. For those of you that don't know, my name is Prentice. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle, and we're so glad uh, that you're here celebrating Advent together. Uh, and so I know that uh, Sarah, our family ministry director, has been kind of given a heads up on what today is going to be about. Uh, and, and just so you know that our whole Advent season is this sermon series called Coming to Our Senses. Coming to Our Senses is about us, with all of our senses, experiencing God. And really, ultimately, that's what Advent is really all about, is that God, through the person of Jesus, came to this earth to walk amongst his people, to actually experience and be with us and us with God. And so that's what this whole sermon series is all about. And so we'll go through different senses. So last week, we talked about sight. And this week, we talk about taste, which is uh, kind of interesting because it's this Bible verse about uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the children are going to be learning about God tasting good. Uh, and trust me, that will be unpacked, so don't worry, parents. Uh, and that goes for us today as well, uh, that there's something about taste that is an experience we have with, with the living God. And so I'm so grateful for us to, to be in this together. Uh, I love our community because we love to be together. We love to be getting to know one another. Uh, when we first start, I'm singing and, and I'm looking back. There's literally like eight people here singing. Oh, yeah, and the rest are out there getting along, hanging out, and I love it. So this is not a judgment. I love it. It's just funny because after the third song, I look back and voila, here you guys are. Uh, and so again, so glad you're here. Let me pray before we get started. Uh, and then we'll see what uh, God has for us this morning. <clears throat> God, thank you so much that you have brought us all here intentionally. God, regardless of, of uh, those that are new or people that have been here for a long time, people that are far away from me, people that are so close to you, I'm glad that we're here together to see what you have to say. And so God, move me out of the way. May everything I say be of you and, and of you only. We thank you for the season that we get to prepare for your arrival. In your name we pray, amen. So I want to continue on this whole communal aspect, and I want us to take about 20 seconds uh, to look to the person next to you and answer me this semi-morbid question. And, and the question is this, uh, if you had to choose your very last meal, it could be an, a single food item, or it could be kind of, you know, you could be high maintenance and just provide a whole dish, you know, uh, or experience. So, so do that right now. Say your name and what that food item or uh, meal would be. All right, go. All right, I hate to interrupt, but I'm going to have us get back together now. I love it. I love it. So here's the deal. You didn't ask me, but I'm going to tell you anyways. I kid you not, my last meal, only because gummy bears wouldn't be as satiating or as filling, uh, but my last meal would be, a lot of you guys don't see what I have in my hand, but it's a donut. It's a maple bar, okay? So if you were to ask me what my last meal would be, uh, or last food item, I kid you not, it'd be a pastry, it'd be with coffee, uh, and, and it would probably be a, a good maple bar. Uh, I'm kind of a maple bar snob, uh, and, and I know a good maple bar when I see one. 
And, and I love everything about it. As soon as I take that bite, I love what it does. It's just this goodness from heaven. Now, now here's the deal. Uh, what I learned about this maple bar, it, I didn't learn that it was so delicious and so incredible and life-changing uh, because someone told me about it. Uh, I didn't know the incredible taste and the effect because I saw it in a picture. And, and it wasn't uh, because, you know, like, it's a donut, so I'm supposed to like it. No, 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 it wasn't any of that. Now, though I don't remember the first time I actually took a bite into a maple bar, I might have been much younger, but I do know that the full experience of this maple bar wasn't hearing about it, wasn't reading about it, wasn't someone telling me about it. It was about taking that first bite. Hate to make you guys jealous. That's amazing, by the way. See, there's something about taste that the Bible talks a lot about that goes far beyond just eating something. Taste actually does something to our whole body and gives us a kind of a holistic experience. And so this illustration of this donut might, might be silly, but, but here's, here's what I want to say. That this idea of taste is something we read about in Psalms uh, 34. It's the first verse that we read. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Now, here's one thing about this word taste that might help us better understand. It's this old Hebrew, ancient Hebrew word called uh, ta'am. And this definition of ta'am isn't just taste, isn't just putting something in your mouth. It's this whole idea of, uh, of, uh, of uh, discovery, and also, not only discovery, but to discover and to experience. That's the word of ta'am. Not just to eat, to fulfill a hunger, but the Bible says taste, a.k.a. experience. And to and discover that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. It was far more about this whole ex- experience rather than just eating something. <clears throat> and that makes a lot of sense to me because I don't know if you knew this, and I didn't know this until I was prepping for this sermon, uh, is that the human body, the average human person, has over 10,000 taste buds. Did you know that? Or around there. And not only do we have 10,000-ish taste buds, uh, but these taste buds also uh, kind of disappear and reappear after a couple weeks. And so, therefore, it's no surprise that after a certain while, maybe there's a food item that you love and now don't like, or, or there's a food item that you hated when you were a child, and all of a sudden, voila, you love it. See, the human taste and the taste buds is so intricate because it actually sends these uh, signals to our brain when we eat something. Isn't that right? I mean, when we eat something, it's delicious, and we understand that. Uh, but, this full, but it provides this full-on experience where it actually causes us to act uh, differently, maybe emotionally, maybe even physically. I, I mean, I've heard it so many times where when people are sad, some people, uh, they like to eat chocolate. Because not only does it taste good, but actually does something to them, even emotionally. 
or ice cream, which is kind of my guilty pleasure. Well, or it does, or food does something to you very <coughs> physically, doesn't it? I remember uh, I had a, I have a friend who had a, a little baby, has a little baby, and I don't know if this is mean or not, so I'm not going to say his name. Uh, but he would feed him lemons, just take a bite into lemons, uh, only because the ba- we would just watch the baby react. Have you ever seen a baby react when they eat a lemon or put a lemon in their mouth? Like they start to like really tense up, and then they get this weird, this like face of just disgust. Uh, and for some reason, he thought it was funny. I didn't. I told him to stop. That's not right. <laughs> so all that to say is that the Bible is so clear uh, that when we look at it through the ancient eyes, that this whole idea of taste isn't just to eat something. It's to experience and fully discover and in this case, discover the goodness of God. Now, this is a big part of why Jesus, again, came to this earth. And this is why it's so significant. Now, did you know that out of all the world religions, all the other major world religions, that the uniqueness of Christianity is Jesus' birth, life, teaching, death, and resurrection? But the uniqueness compared to all the other major world religions is that God came into the very creation that God created through the person of Jesus so we can experience him, so he can experience us. This level of intimacy that is rarely found in other religions. And it's what God seeks and desires for all of us. Therefore, there's this proclamation of God saying, Come and taste and see, experience and discover me and what I have to offer. And so Psalms 38 or 34 verse 8, it's not only an exhortation, it's this Hebrew grammar exhortation, but it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to experience, to take part in the life that God has called us and created us to live. To live. And it's not just a life Uh, that is about breathing, because if you're alive, we're all breathing. But God calls us beyond that life, not just about breathing, but to come alive. Not just to breathe, but to actually come alive. That's what God has for us. That's the kind of life that God calls us to live. That's the kind of life that God promises us when we experience and discover and taste and see the goodness of God. And so the New Testament here, and this is really important, the New Testament here uh, <coughs> has two main words for the word life. See, in the English word, we have one word, life. Life is life. But in the, old, in the Koine Greek, in the, in the New Testament Greek, uh, the first word is bios. And I'm sure that sounds familiar. Bios is where we get the word biology. And it's really the study of life, a physical life. So to be alive and to breathe and to be walking, to be uh, breathing, that is, we have, we possess by us. Now, Jesus talks about a second type of life. And the second type of life is not by us, but it's this word zoe. This word zoe. Zoe is a kind of life that is fully in harmony with Jesus eternal life that God has to offer. It's a beautiful life of shalom uh, that 
can only really come through the grace of God by experiencing him and discovering him. And so my point is this, that everybody who's breathing, who's alive, possesses bios. If you're here, you have bios. But not everyone who has bios possesses zoe. And so in this morning's text, as we continue in John chapter 6, we see a vivid picture of Jesus' invitation to this life of Zoe that is to be experienced, not heard about, not read about, not to see other people live it, but for us to be living it and experiencing it ourselves. And this experience changes everything. Because taste, to discover, to experience becomes the vehicle for sight. And so that's why it says, come taste and see. I mean, have you ever eaten something? And maybe, you know, you guys just talked about it, but eaten something that was so delicious that from that point on, your life would never see, be the same. And you kind of, you saw the lights. And that's kind of this proclamation of come taste and see. When you experience the goodness of God and see what God has to offer, and when you live this Zoe life, then you will see that God is for you and God wants to be in relationship with you. So it's this two-part, to, to taste and to see. You know, uh, not too long ago, I experienced this fruit called um, passion fruit. Now, I've always had like passion fruit lemonade from Starbucks, right? And, and passion fruit drinks here and there and passion fruit this and that. Have you ever had an actual passion fruit? I mean, it is delicious. And I don't know where you can find it around here. I, I had it when I was in Africa. <clears throat> but it is one of the most delicious fruits you'll ever have. And, and when I was reading this verse and, and kind of studying this, that's the first thing I thought about was the passion fruit. That as soon as I ate and tasted the goodness of the passion fruit, my life was really never the same again. And I remember we were with a team uh, in Rwanda, and they knew that uh, every time I came into the dining room or the eating area, that they would just stockpile passion fruit on my plate because they knew how much I loved it. And so it's through this lens of understanding that God calls us to a Zoe life through tasting and through seeing that we come back to John chapter 6. And what we see in John chapter 6 is three profound truths about this invitation to experience. The first truth is the invitation begins with Christ. It begins with Christ. The second thing that we see, uh, a profound truth in John chapter 6, is the Oftentimes, this invitation, A, it starts with Christ, but second, this invitation can be offensive. It can be offensive. And we'll talk more about what that means. And third, the invitation is for appropriation. It's for us to take on Jesus. That's what communion, that's what eating of Jesus' body and blood is all about, what we'll come to see. <clears throat> so first, we'll talk about the invitation begins with Christ. Uh, in our text, in chapter, John chapter 6, Jesus, let me set up a little context for you. Jesus is gaining massive amounts of popularity and, and fame and status. They might not believe that he's the Messiah, that he's God, but at this point, because of all these miracles, they're really attracted to Jesus. <clears throat> 
You know, so we're at chapter 6 right now, but there's so many miracles that happened before that. So I'll give you a few. Uh, John chapter 1, your favorite and my favorite miracle of all time. Uh, Jesus turned a massive amount of water into wine, right? Uh, and then John chapter 4, the healing of the official son in Capernaum. Uh, in John chapter 5, the healing of the paralytic. And finally, we get to John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Now, again, people didn't know what to think of this Jesus guy. Uh, There's probably a spectrum from, wow, I'm really impressed by the miracles that you can do, uh, all the way to, wow, this must be God. This must be the one sent from above. And, And so at this point, they're looking for Jesus. And it's interesting the way that Jesus interacts with these, with the crowd is what the Bible calls them. It says, Verily, truly, I tell you, John chapter 6, 26, you are looking for me, because right now they're looking for Jesus. Where is Jesus? And he says, uh, You're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I'll read that again because this is really important. I want us to catch this verse. It's Jesus is calling his disciples out. And he says, you're looking for me right now, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus exposes their motives. Basically, Jesus is saying, uh, you're looking for me right now, friends. You're looking for me because you were impressed by the object of the miracles Uh, i.e. bread, fish, wine, healing, and such, rather than the author of them. Right now, you are more impressed with, with the actual object of the miracles rather than the author of who performs them. So they care less about the giver of the miracle of God. Not, not only do they not care, they probably don't know, they just care about the end results. They benefited. They got this. They got what they wanted. That's what they cared about, rather than understanding that all of that came from God through Jesus. <clears throat> you know, and when I, so I do several weddings, and when I do a wedding, there's a, there's a section of when we talk about the rings. Uh, and, and the rings symbolizes, those of you that are married understand, that the ring symbolizes uh, the, this commitment this visual uh, of pointing to a commitment in a relationship uh, in a covenant that you have with your spouse. Now, now, can you imagine if I was officiating a wedding and I got to the ring part and, and I said, uh, well, these are the rings, uh, and now I want you to know, couple, husband and wife, that these are going to be more important than your spouse. So take good care of these rings because this is what is important. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, right? I don't expect you to agree and say, yeah, that, that's what we should do uh, for some of you guys that love your rings. It's your spouse, that's the important part, right? Yes, that is true. But the, the interesting part of this story is that his disciples are saying, look, I don't care about the, the, the actual person who gives the miracle, I just care about the miracle. I just care about the actual symbol of what this represents, not the actual God who does it. And so I love the way uh, that Jesus continued, what Jesus continues to say. Jesus says, okay, and then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? 
And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus says, in order for you to experience this Zoe life to his disciples, you have to stop right now in caring only about what you benefit from, only about these miracles, only about the fact that I fed you fish and bread and healed. You need to stop right now to you need to take that off the pedestal. And what I need you to care about is that, that you need to believe that I was sent from God. You need to believe what I have to offer is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the Zoe life begins with me and the only one starting place is and always will be through me, the person of Jesus. That's it. Just believe. See, in our relationship with Christ, we often require something to happen first. Because at this point, just like last week, these disciples are asking for a sign. <clears throat> these disciples say, okay, uh, Jesus, you think that you're telling me that you're God, that you're sent from above? Well, you're going to need to prove it. You're going to need to prove something. You need to continue to do miracles. You need to continue to heal. You need to continue to provide. And Jesus is saying, stop. Before any of that, the starting point is belief, is to trust, is to have faith. And, I, and this so reminds me of our relationship with God, especially mine included, that we say, just like his disciples, we say, look, before I can believe, before I can take that step of faith, God, I need you to do something. Then I will believe. God, I need you to take this burden away from me. God, I need you to fix my relationship. God, I need you to provide for me financially. God, take away this hurt, this burden. Then, oftentimes, then only then will I follow you. And if God continues to bless me in whatever way, then I will follow. But if God takes something away, there's a contingency. If God blesses me, gives me, and provides for me, then I will believe. But the moment that God takes that away, then I will stop. It's this, what we call this magic genie effect. We, 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 kind of, we consider God as like some magic genie. God, give me this, give me that. Then I'll believe. Then I'll be on your side. Then I'll walk by faith. But as soon, but as, soon as God takes that away or doesn't, provide, we tend to walk away in disbelief, in doubt. And doubt isn't always bad. We talked about that last week. But in the sense that God is not for us. <coughs> so faith then becomes something oftentimes. Uh, so, so faith is about this. Faith is about being dependent not on the outside circumstances, but on faith and faith alone. I love that. I love the fact that God calls us to a faith that's not dictated upon outside circumstances, but solely on God and God alone. I had a good friend, I have a good friend, uh, who his daughter at the age of three was diagnosed with an uh, inoperable brain tumor of cancer. Uh, and I remember talking to him, and, and he said less than 
uh, 1% survive past the age of five. And I am not a parent. I can't imagine what that family went through. It's going through even today. And I remember him talking to me, and he's saying, Prentice, I'll tell you what. He said, no matter what happens to my daughter, whether she lives or whether she dies, I will trust and follow God all the days of my life. And there's something about that that was such a teaching moment for me that this friend of mine who may just lose his daughter can actually say, no matter what happens, no matter what my outside circumstance looks like, I am going to trust and follow Jesus. A year later, she did go to heaven to be with Jesus. And I remember talking to Jake, to to my friend, and he says, Prentice, what I said to you still remains true. And he said this in tears. He said, though God took my daughter away, I will continue to follow and give my life to Jesus. My friend Jake understood that his faith wasn't contingent upon outside circumstances to the extreme. But it began with his understanding that God is for him and that God is still good. That was incredible. And it kind of convicted me that we have this if-then attitude with God. If God does this, then I will follow. Is that us? Do we have an if-then attitude in our faith with God? The second truth that we learn is that the invitation is offensive. Let me just read and tell you what I'm talking about. It says, so they asked his disciples, again, what sign uh, then will you give that that we may see it and believe you? Jesus, give me a sign. Give me something to believe. What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, They're saying to Jesus, you think that you're from God. Well, you need to prove it. Are you saying, first of all, are you saying that you're superior to Moses? Here's the deal, Jesus, is what they're saying. Moses fed several thousand people with bread, manna, directly from heaven for 40 years. Now, Jesus, your bread, as impressive as it was, uh, it was only for a few thousand people. And it was from a little boy's lunch. So you need to give us bigger miracles. You need to give us bigger than Moses-sized miracles. And what Jesus does, as he always does, is this weird, like, judo move. He takes what they accuse him and attack him with, turns it around to kind of have the joke on them. And so he does this. He uses the very argument they give him. He throws it back and says, yes, you're right. It is Moses that I got the bread from heaven, but I'm gonna throw that back at you and let you know that no longer is it bread from heaven, this actual substance, it's me that becomes the bread from God. Jesus is saying, now I, what you say is true, but now I'm gonna one-up you and say, no, there's no actual bread, 
I become the bread from above, from heaven. And in verse 53, it says, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, uh, just like the bread. Now, so stay with me here. Uh, this is really important. It says, just like the bread. It says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he uses the word zoe, not bios. He uses the word zoe this entire time. Whoever eats my flesh, if, if you are new to church, stay with me. Okay, stay with me. I'm glad you're here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, has eternal zoe, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. <coughs> Now, when we go back to the first century lens, which we have to do, uh, we kind of know what the disciples were thinking. We're probably thinking the same thing, right? Like, that's weird. That is very weird what Jesus is asking them to do. Uh, And not only was it weird, it was downright offensive. When Jesus is saying, you have to eat my body, my physical body, and drink my blood, not only is it disgusting, but it's actually offensive. And and here's why. This was during a time where cannibalism was an actual practice in ancient paganism during that time. It was the very people that that opposed the Jews, and Jews opposed them. It was an actual practice. And, And what people are hearing is, wait a minute, we're Jews. We can't practice cannibalism. That's for the pagans. What are you saying, Jesus? And so, A, uh, it was part of paganism, but also, B, he was saying, drink my blood. You see the problem with blood and Jewish eating tradition and Jewish laws? Blood is not kosher. It's actually against Jewish laws to eat blood or to drink blood. (coughs) And so in two ways, they were very offended uh, that Jesus would say, eat my body. Because they didn't quite get it. Because Jesus didn't actually mean, come and eat my flesh and, and, and drink my actual blood. But they didn't understand it. In verse 60, uh, it says this. It says, uh, this is hard to understand, Jesus. How can anybody accept this? They're so offended and confused, I would say. And then in verse 66, it says, many of his disciples turned and walked away. Turn and walked away. And I thought, wow, isn't this the way we operate oftentimes? You know, I mean, even in real life, if somebody offends you or hurts you or does something bad to you, you walk away. You no longer want to be friends with them or associate yourself with them, right? Unless, unless you live with them, then you're kind of stuck. But that's kind of our natural disposition, that if someone offends us or hurts our feelings, then we're just going to walk away. We want nothing to do with them because they didn't understand. And so what these people do is they latch on to something else that they believe will give them this Zoe life only to be unfulfilled at the end of the day. At the end of the day. <coughs> and so... That how that relates to us and myself is when I'm reading this is that we always want all the good things that God has to offer. 
And the moment that God asks us to do something uh, out of our comfort zone, like, hey, you must die to become saved. Hey, you must be last to become first. You must, be, you must serve and, and not always want to be the victor. God's message, the good news of the gospel, is oftentimes offensive to us. It's saying that what you are doing, the way you are living, is actually inadequate. It's insufficient. And the only way you can experience the life that God has you to live is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And right then and there, people are like, whoa, wait, what are you talking about? I know what I'm doing. I know how to experience life. Don't you dare tell me what I need and what I don't need. And so the gospel is oftentimes offensive in that way, even to us today. God, don't worry. I got it. And, and because living the Christian life can be so difficult sometimes. You know the biggest, <coughs> the biggest myth that I've ever heard, even to this day, uh, and it confuses me is that when I'm around people, they always say, oh man, the day I met Jesus, my life has been so great ever since. Oh man, being a Christian is nothing but filled with joy and peace and all this good stuff. And, and I think I know what they're saying because I agree with them, but at the same time, no, sometimes God calls us to live a more uncomfortable, more difficult, more challenging life. What are you talking about? That, uh, ironically, upside-down kingdom ethics is the way we experience Zoe. And so we don't want that. We don't want to live the difficult life. We want to take the easy way around, thinking it's going to take us to the same direction, and it doesn't. And that's why when people are addicted, they feel the pain. They are left uh, in more darkness than they started. And people latch on to unhealthy relationships. People latch on to sexuality, uh, different types of addictions, different types of things on the internet, uh, foods, or, or whatever it is. What we say is, living this Christian life is difficult, so what I'm going to do is find my own way to Zoe, only to be disappointed at the end of the day. Money, no. Fame, no. Status, no. The best job, no. Biggest house, no. None of that can guide us and take us to Zoe life to shalom, to fulfilling life. That's only through Jesus. <clears throat> the third is at this invitation. This is where the eating of the body and the blood starts to make sense, is it's an invitation for appropriation. It's this graphic symbolism that of eating and drinking Christ is a powerful way of appropriating ourselves with him, literally us taking him on. It's a radical identification, declaring our faith. But this graphic statement of eating and drinking of his body and blood is actually brilliant. Jesus uses eat and to drink because everybody knows that food and water represents life. Everybody knows, even today, water and food represents life. It's essential to live. And without it, it can lead to sickness and ultimately it can lead to death. But here's what Jesus is saying. What you eat and drink matters. <clears throat> what you fill yourself up with matters. And if you want true life, it's through partaking in the life of Jesus. Now the reverse problem is that there's also a misappropriation. A misappropriation 
uh, of us taking on Jesus. Here's what I mean. I like to take us back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and it says this. It says, you are the salt of the earth. So when you taste something, salt makes it better. Uh, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. <clears throat> so in the first century, there's two purposes of salt. The first purpose was because they didn't have the whirlpool refrigeration system that many of us have to keep food good uh, and to preserve food. They didn't have that. Uh, so they needed salt to preserve the food, especially in that hot climate. Uh, and that's, kind of, that's a whole different sermon. Uh, but secondly, uh, do you know why salt was used? To make it taste good. To make food taste good. I don't know about you, but I love a lot of salt on my food. I know that's not good, but it makes it taste delicious. It's to enhance the flavor. And so the question I have for you and myself is that when we eat and drink of Jesus, when we take the personhood of Jesus on to live life and to show what Jesus is all about, the question is, are we making Jesus taste good to others? The way we live, the way we interact with people, is that actually appetizing for others to see? Because I really believe, and I believe this with the bottom of my heart, that our actions, the way we treat people, the way we love people, the way we forgive people, reflects Jesus in such a powerful way without ever even exclaiming the name of Jesus even. Now, I think there is a time and place where we talk vividly about who Jesus is, but I also believe what St. Francis of Assisi says. He says, preach the gospel at all times, but use words only when necessary. Preach the gospel always. <clears throat> and are we doing that? Are we preaching the gospel with our lives? The story, I'll end with this story. A couple months ago, I went to Rwanda. And for those of you that know a little bit of Rwandan history, is that in 94, not too long ago, there was a genocide where two million people were killed in a matter of days, a couple weeks, between this, this war, really this genocide with the Hutus and the Tutsis. <coughs> And the number one rule that they told me when I went there was, okay, you don't talk about the genocide. They don't like to talk about the genocide. You don't, it, it's actually rude to bring up the genocide. So you don't talk about it. And I said, okay. <clears throat> so I go there, uh, and one of my last nights, I, I'm outside, I'm talking with our, one of our drivers. Uh, and without uh, solicitation, he starts telling about his life. And it's a life that I can never comprehend, that I can never understand, that during this genocide, he was 15 years old, and he saw his mother and three siblings killed in front of him, because that's the way the killings were done, in front of the loved ones. And so he was left with the other parent, and that's it. And he was telling me, and he was shaking, and, and I was like, hey, look, you can stop. You don't have to tell me about this. I, I get it. And he says, no, it's okay. And he starts telling me about this I don't want to repeat it, but these brutal acts of the way he saw people being killed, including his own family. 
But what I'll never forget about that story is that immediately after that, he says, Prentice, but I forgive them. He says, I forgive them. And I thought to myself, if I, were, I don't even know if I could say that. He, said, he says, Prentice, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And I forgive him. And right then and there, what I saw in him was so much Jesus. Jesus was so appetizing. Jesus looked so good that, especially for me, if I wasn't a Christian, I would say, I don't know what's going on with that guy, but, but I want what he has. Because through his action, outside of his circumstances, he decided that he wanted to make Jesus look good. And through that, he says, I offered forgiveness to the people that killed my family. And I don't even know if I could ever say that or would be able to say that. Are we taking on Jesus? Are we making Jesus look good? Are we bringing Jesus to the places that we go, <coughs> to the ends of the world? It says Judea. It says outside the city of Judea, and it says Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This whole idea of Samaria is are you taking Jesus even to the places you don't want to go? that you feel uncomfortable going to. People that look differently than you, people that speak differently than you, people that eat different foods than you. Are we okay going there and bringing the light of Jesus? I hope the answer is yes. And ironically, or, or as it fits, I'm gonna invite the band up right now <coughs> and those that are gonna serve us communion. And I want us to think about this right before we partake, is just that we would enter into this space knowing that in just a moment, we are going to take on, we're going to eat, not literally, but we're going to take on the person of Jesus, his body and his blood. Because what that does, it provides an experience. This is how you experience me. Put me on. And so for those of you uh, that maybe this is your first time and you're saying, you know what, I, I, I'm not a Christian. I'm just here for, for God knows why. I believe it's because God has you here. If that's you, you're invited to this table. Everyone is invited to this table. When, when Jesus calls his disciples and he says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. His disciples had no clue what he was talking about. They were fishermen. And they were like, Jesus says follow? All right, I'll give it a shot. They had no idea what they were in for, but they said yes to joining and participating in that experience. And, and so maybe you're here, and, and maybe for the first time, you want to say yes, not knowing what is in front of you, not having all the answers, not changing your life circumstances, but for the first time today, you're saying yes. I want to check this out. I want to be part of that experience. I want to just taste, because I promise you, through that taste, you will see that the Lord is good.